0: Everyone, Um, it's good to be here. Um, This is my my second time um, here preaching. Um, It's my uh, second time this week actually in Lewisham. Um, I was out with Mikey P uh, and a group of guys in um, in uh, Lewisham, the Clock Tower. We were doing a bit of street preaching, Um, so it's good. Hello, hello, hello. Um, It's good to be with you again. Um, We're in Hosea which is a great book, um, immensely uh, challenging. Um, Thank you. And uh, yeah, just a a blessing to be, uh, to have been preparing in the book of Hosea um, for a couple of weeks to prepare to speak to you. Let me read the passage and then we'll dive in. Um, It's a very meaty uh, passage. Um, Let me actually read from Hosea chapter 6 from verse 1. So I'm going to read from Verse one, but the passage we're looking at is really from verse four. Uh, But let me start from verse one. So Hosea six, from verse one. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has He has torn us that He may heal us. He has struck us down, and He will bind us up. After two days He will revive us; on the third day He will raise us up. That we may live before him. let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Therefore I' have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering, but like Adam they transgressed the covenant, there they dealt faithlessly with me, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood, as robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together, they murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. In the house of Israel, I've seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed, when I restore the fortunes of my people. When I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside but they do not consider that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds surround them, they are before my face. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They are all adulterers. They are like a heated oven, whose baker ceases to stir the fire, from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out, I need to speak up louder, it seems. Um, Okay, I'll speak like this. (laughs) On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with mockers, for their hearts like an oven. For with hearts like an oven, they approach their intrigue. All night, their anger smolders. In the morning, it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are hot as an oven. And they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen, and none of them calls upon me. It's a a really um, meaty passage that we're looking at uh, today. Let me me pray again. We definitely need God's help. Let me pray. Um, Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great mercy and patience towards us, Lord God, and that you desire for us to know you. You desire for us to live lives which are pleasing to you. And yet so often we, we fail, and yet you appeal to us again and again and again. You seek to get our attention. And so, Father God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room and those who are online. Lord God, where there are areas where you're seeking to catch our attention, Lord God, we ask that we wouldn't miss your message today. We pray, Father God, that you'd help us to hear you clearly, to see you clearly, and to live lives which are pleasing to you. Father God, we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Now, this isn't me having a go at Mikey P, um, but how do you feel when someone messes up your name? <laughs> how do you feel when someone messes up your name? Um, my name is Felix Aramor. Felix Aramor. Now, in, in my kindness and mercy, I sometimes introduce myself as Arimo, because that's easier. So I don't mind if you call me Aramor, Arimo, it's all good. It's all fine. Um, but Bill Gates doesn't know my name. Um, according to Microsoft Word, my name is Felix Stowe Aroma. <laughs> That's what autocorrect thinks my name is, Felix Stowe Aroma. That's not my name. Um, sometimes my colleagues, um, colleagues that I've been working with for years, in emails, they'll spell my name. Um, it might be Filex um, or Flex, um, and a, a common misspelling Flex, you know. Um, a common misspelling is, is not ARIMO, but ARO, no, uh, Amero. Amero, so they've reversed the, the R and the M. Um, so that, that often happens. Um, but to be fair, I don't mind too much if people mess up my name in that way. Um, what I mind more is if um, people um, mischaracterize me, if they misrepresent me. That's more serious. Um, so I haven't been following in depth the whole... Johnny Depp, Amber Heard situation. I've not been um, tuning in, but it's gone on for weeks. Um, It was a a defamation trial where basically, as far as I understand it, what's happening is Amber Heard's accused Johnny Depp of abuse and he wants to clear his name. So his reputation is so important to him that he's willing to spend money, to get lawyers, to spend time trying to clear his name so he's not known as an abuser. And for Amber Heard, on her part, she doesn't want to be known as a liar. Um, and so when it comes to our reputation, that's, that's more serious. How do you feel if people mischaracterize you, if they misrepresent you? It's not nice, is it? When I was, um, when I was younger, so I remember this from like primary school, um, if I got in trouble for something I didn't do, uh, I hated it so much. I felt so... Um, angry and powerless and frustrated that I'd cry. I'd cry if I was being um, punished for something I didn't do or being accused of something I didn't do. I just found it so frustrating. Um, and, I mean, the same is true for us as adults, isn't it? Um, there's, you know, that's why there's a law against defamation. You can't slander someone. You can't, you can't defame someone. You can't mischaracterize something, someone because the law will protect you from that kind of um, behavior. And I wonder, I'm guessing none of us are, are happy when we're mischaracterized or if people get our names wrong. Um, have you ever wondered why that is? Why is it that we don't like it when people get our names wrong? When, when, when people mischaracterize us? What, why is it that we, we mind so much when that happens? I'm sure there's a, a number of different reasons, but I think the reason that, that comes most prominently in my mind is that we want to be known. As human beings, we have an in-built desire to be known. We want to be known by the people around us. And, and with that, we want to be known and we want to be loved. We want to enjoy intimate relationships with people. And I'm sure you'd agree with me that intimate relationship is impossible if you're not known. It's impossible to, to love someone that you don't know. It's impossible for someone to say that they love you if they don't really know you. Does that make sense? Because otherwise, the the person that they claim to love is is just a figment of their imagination. That person doesn't exist. That person is a fantasy. So in order to be loved, we must be known. And we know that all of us, we, we, we have that desire. We want to be known because we want to be loved. Now that desire that we find in ourselves is actually a desire that we see in God. God wants to be known because he wants to be loved. And that's what the book of Hosea depicts for us so clearly, so powerfully. God desires to be known because he desires to be loved. I I need to say something about that so that we don't misunderstand what's going on. But um, let me just show you that in Hosea. So in Hosea chapter 6, let me read... From verse 3, this is Hosea appealing to the people. He's saying, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. But then God says to the people, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. And then let me skip over to verse 6, where it says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So God here is, is calling to people, and he's, he's holding them to account. He's saying, you guys, your love is, is really fickle. You guys don't love very well. What I desire is love. That's what I want from you guys. Much more than your sacrifices, your burnt offerings, I want you guys to love me, to show love. And there's a, you know, in Hebrew, there's like a parallel thing where um, the same thing is said in different ways, and that helps you understand what's going on. So in verse 6, there's like a parallel, two parallel sentences, where it says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. And the parallel line says, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings, And so it's obvious that sacrifice and burnt offering goes together. They're kind of two ways of saying the same thing. Which means that steadfast love and knowledge of God are parallels. They're two ways of saying the same thing. So God desires in his people, he wants us to know him, that we might love him. That's what God desires. But do you see what the accusation is that God has against his people? Verse 4, your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Now for us, that that metaphor um, or that simile, it's not one that kind of grabs us immediately. But imagine if you're out in the desert and you've run out of water and you're thirsty and all you see, you go to bed at night and, and all you're seeing is is desert, sand, nothing that you can drink. And then you wake up in the morning and then you see a a cloud. You're hoping like, wow, there's a cloud. Hopefully this thing's going to bring me rain. But within a a few hours, within, within a few minutes, it's evaporated. It's just been burnt away by the heat. It's disappointing, isn't it? That's the kind of picture we have here. God is saying to his people, your love is like the morning cloud. It just evaporates. Your love is like the dew that goes early away. So, you know, sometimes on, um, if you've got a garden or just even when you look out on the park, if you're out early, when you're walking through, there's, you know, there's water droplets. Uh, the grass is a bit wet. Just overnight, there's dew that comes up. But you know, by 11 o'clock, by 12 o'clock, it's all gone. It's, it's dried up. God's saying the love of his people is like that. It goes early away. So this is God's devastating critique of his people. And there's a massive contrast here. The reason I kept on reading from the beginning of chapter 6 is because I think there's a deliberate contrast here. Whereas God's love is marked by faithfulness, ours is marked by fickleness. So when, when Hosea is calling the people back to God, he's able to do so with confidence because he knows that God is a faithful God. That God's love is faithful. So he says, let's press on to know the Lord. He's going out as sure as the dawn. So as certain as we can be that, that you know, as, as day follows night, that there's going to be a new day tomorrow, as certain as we can be about that, we can be certain about God's love. He's going out as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. So when it's the season for rain, you, can, you know that there's going to be rain. God's love is like that. He just showers us with His blessing, with His love, with His kindness. We can rely on it. God's love is refreshing, it's reliable. Whereas our love, by contrast, is unreliable, it's fleeting, it's not constant, it evaporates. And this may sound quite abstract. Maybe our temptation is to look at Israel and to be like, ah, you guys are, you guys keep messing up. Like, God's done all these wonderful things to you. Like, why do you keep messing up? Israel, why are you so dumb? But then we look at ourselves and we notice that there's a contrast between us on a Sunday singing, you know, singing to Jesus, oh how we love you, and then come Monday, Tuesday, even Sunday afternoon. <laughs> Our love evaporates. Our love is like the morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. So the first thing we need to know is that God desires for us to know him because he wants us to love him. But I said that we need to kind of asterisk come back to this. Because it's very easy for us to misunderstand what God's love is really like. Or what you know, how, how God's attitude is towards us. Because the thing about God is that he doesn't need us. He made us. But he doesn't need us. We need him. We need God. So God wants us to know him. And to love him, not because he needs our love, because we need to love him. It's what we're made for. It's what we're made for. So when we fail to love God, when we fail to know God, we're harming ourselves. We're doing damage to ourselves. And because God loves us, he desires what's best for us. And what's best for us is to know him and to love him. So even as God appeals for us to love him, he's actually loving us. Do you get that? So God isn't needy, God isn't kind of, you know, walking around singing, all by myself. (laughs) You know, this isn't like, oh, poor God, let's love him so he doesn't feel so lonely. That's not what's going on. You remember, God God is Trinity, God has existed for eternity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's always been enjoying the perfect company. It's actually a crazy thing that God would want us to be included in that. You know how you got, like, a, you may have a, a group of friends where you guys are tight. You, you, like, you guys have been together for the longest time. Like, you, you guys have been rolling deep for the longest time. Now, if, let's say there's three of you. If person number four wants to come and, come and slide in, like, some of you will be feeling some way. You don't want number four person to come in, yeah? Because, they, you know, they, have, they don't have your history. They don't know. They don't really know you guys. So like, who are you? Um, God could easily be like that with us. Like he's, he's, been in, he's been enjoying perfect relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. Um, he doesn't need us to come in and mess that up. And yet in the overflowing of his love, in the abundance of his love, he invites us in. He wants us to be part of this relationship of love. Um, yeah, he, he wants to adopt us as his children. He wants us to enjoy the, the love that he's enjoyed for all eternity. Um, and that's true love, isn't it? When, you know, t- thinking about that friendship group of yours, when you guys are so secure in your relationship that you actually, rather than turning in on yourselves, you're turning outward, and you're wanting to invite other people in. That's, that's God's kind of love. That's the way that he loves us. So secure in, his, in the love that he enjoys that he now opens it up and says, he actually creates the world in order for us to know that love. That's what God is like. And so it's absolutely crazy that we would take that love for granted, that we would spurn that love, that we would act as if the love that we were made for is an optional extra. But that's how we behave. That's how we act. God says of his people, Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Now, the thing about um, when I use the word love, often we think about feelings. We're thinking about kind of warm affection for God, you know, singing God's praise, and and that's what we think when we're thinking about love often. Whereas in Hosea, it's clear that Love for God is actually seen in particular actions. Love for God is seen in particular actions. So let me read it again and just notice how God connects the knowledge of Him, the love of Him, with our behavior, actually our behavior to one another. So have a look um, with me at verse 4 again. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like the morning cloud. Like a Jew that goes away early. Therefore I've hewn them by the prophets. I've slain them by the words of my mouth. And my judgment goes forth as the light. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Verse 7. But like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. Notice the switch in verse 8. Gilead is a city of evildoers. Tracked with blood. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together, they murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Um, And then it goes on, later on it talks about, in in chapter 7, it talks about how um, there's corruption amongst the leaders. So chapter 7, verse 3. By their evil they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They're all adulterers. Uh, they are like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. On the day of our king, the princes become sick with the heat of wine. He stretches out his hand with mockers, for with hearts like an oven they approach their intrigue all day, night, all night long. Uh, their anger smoulders. In the morning, it blazes like a blazing fire. Um, so it, it switches in verse seven. So chapter six, verse seven and verse eight. There's a switch between. They're transgressing the covenant. So that's the relationship that God has with his people. They've they've broken that covenant, that devotion that they ought to have to God. Uh, They're dealing faithlessly with God. But then it says, Gilead is a city of evildoers tracked with blood. So there's violence taking place amongst the people. There's bloodshed taking place. And so the way that the evidence that Israel, God's people, have turned away from God, that they're failing to love God is that they're failing to love each other. There's a connection between how we relate to each other and how we're doing in our relationship with God. So the evidence is actually the broken relationships that exist amongst the people of God. And I was really struck when I was reading and preparing. I was really struck by verse 9. It says, As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. They commit villainy. Or they commit heinous crimes. And I was really kind of trying to figure out what is going on here. How is it that we're talking about priests committing murder? Like how does that even make sense? I was trying to, like, trying to reconstruct the historical situation where these priests are actually banding together and committing murder. He, it, it says that they're like robbers lying in wait. So they plot, they plan together in order to murder on the way to Shechem. And I really kind of, really struggled, like, what is going on here? So there are three things, three options that lie before us in terms of what is actually going on here. Um, at first I thought, no, it's impossible. They can't really be committing murder. Maybe it's a metaphor for something else. That's what I thought. But then I realized, um, who was it that killed the Lord Jesus? Like, these were religious leaders, weren't they? It was the, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees that, you know, they banded together with the scribes and they, they, they plotted to kill Jesus. And just before, in verse 6, it says, oh no, sorry, in verse 5, Jesus sa- uh, sorry, God says, I've hewn them by my prophets, I've slain them by the words of my mouth. So there's this scene in, um, in Jesus' ministry where he's talking to, so in Matthew 23, he's talking to the religious leaders and he's saying that you guys, are, you're the guys who killed the prophets, you're the guys who killed the prophets. So God sends to you messengers, and rather than listening to the messengers who are telling you, come back to God, come back to God, he loves you, come back to God, instead of listening to those messengers, you guys end, end up plotting to kill the messengers instead. We actually see that in, in, for example, in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah is saying to the people, there's judgment coming. You guys are living wrongly. There's judgment coming. And they're, they're like, you know, let's throw him in a pit. Let's lock him away. Let's put him in prison. Let's kill him because they don't like his message. Same with the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, you know, he, he likens um, Israel and the leaders to um, to to a fig tree not bearing fruit, and he um, you know, he curses the fig tree. He says, you know, may may no one eat fruit from you again. You know, he's he's in the temple and he's turning over temples and he, at the, the the tables in the temple, and he's saying that you guys, the way that you're living, it's not right. So he's he's pronouncing judgment on them, and they don't like it, and so they plot to kill him. And, and even as I say this, this may feel so far removed from us. Um, but I think it's important for us to apply it to ourselves um, for a couple of reasons. One is that in the New Testament, we, as God's people, are all known as priests. I should probably rewind. So, priests in the Old Testament, they were mediators, they were go betweens. It's like they had one hand on the people, and then another hand they're holding on to God, and they'll, they'll bring in t- the two together. They were showing the people how to live in right relationship with God, and they were taking God's instructions and they were passing it on to the people. So they were bridging that gap. They were bridge builders, bridging the gap between God and the people. Israel as a nation, so you had priests within Israel helping Israel know how to worship God, but then you also had the nation was described as a kingdom of priests, right? As a a whole nation, they were to stand in the gap between God and the rest of the other nations, showing the rest of the nations how to live in right relationship with God. And in the New Testament, uh, believers in the Lord Jesus, we're called to do the same thing. We're called to bridge that gap between, um, between God and the people. We're to show people how to live in right relationship with God. We are priests according to the Bible. And so in what way can we be like those priests who wanted to silence the prophets and wanted to kill the Lord Jesus? I think it's seen in our attitude to God's word. Are we prepared to hear hard things from God's word? Are we prepared to, to hear God highlight our sin and bring it to light? Now we don't need to kill prophets in order not to hear God's word. We just need to not come to church. Or we can just switch off the, you know, the live stream. We don't need to tune in anymore. So there's a real challenge for us in our attitude to God's word. Are we eager to hear God's word, even if it's a hard word, even if it's a rebuking word? Uh, is our attitude one of, "Yeah, Lord, this is not hard. This is not easy to hear, but this is Your word. Let me submit to it," or do we have an attitude of just wanting to cut off um, God's word? So that's the first way that this uh, this verse may apply to us. As robbers lie in wait for a man, so the priests band together. They murder on the way to Shechem. It could be their response to the prophets that God was sending. A second way that this could apply to us um, is, so when it talks about their murdering on the way to Shechem, so Shechem was another, like, religious center. It was for the northern tribes. So you know how Jerusalem was the place of the tabernacle and the temple for the southern tribes. So Shechem was one of those uh, religious places, religious centers for the northern tribes. So when I'm thinking, okay, they're, they're going on the way to Shechem and they're committing murder, how does that even make sense? I, I wonder, this may not be right, but I wonder whether it's a little bit like the parable or the story Jesus told of the Good Samaritan. Do you remember that story? So you've got uh, a priest um, heading down that road from Jericho to Jerusalem, probably on their way to do, perform all sorts of religious duties, and they see a, a, a neglected a beaten man on the floor, and they just—they neglect him. They walk past him. Yeah, that story. And then a Levite, who's also like a, a temple minister, um, and he sees this man who's been robbed, who's been—you know—who's been left for dead on the road, and he also walks past because, you know, he's going to Jerusalem. He's got important things to do. And I just wonder whether one of the ways that the priests. Are committing murder is through neglect, not just through active hostility against God's word and against, God, against God's messengers, but maybe it's through the neglect of their social responsibility. They see needs, but they walk past it because they're too busy. And again, I think that this is you know this is a word for us as well, because London is London is a is a busy place. It's a hard place to live in many ways. Um, in order to survive, in order to pay that rent, you need to be working. Many, many hours in order to to have enough money in order to pay your rent. But the danger is that we neglect our duty of care to one another. Um, So I think think what this church does is amazing in terms of barley loaves, in terms of TLG, just all sorts of ways in which, um, as a church community, um, both in the present and in the past, you guys have served the local community. I think that's amazing. Um, But there is a danger, isn't there, that we can become, our lives can be so busy... That we just don't have time for those things anymore. That as we rightly want to, you know, feed our families and care for certain needs, or maybe like we've got, you know, we've got things to do um, within the church. We're we're busy, um, you know, preparing Bible study, we're going to to prayer meeting, but the danger is that we neglect needs along the way. So that could be in terms of barley loaves, um, like people who are available to volunteer, who could actually be helping out with barley loaves as drivers, or maybe to distribute stuff here. Um, it may be that that's one way, but it's one of those things where um, that's not even sufficient because I know that on my way, in fact, on, I, was, I, was, I said that I was in Lewisham on, on Monday, and I had a group of 14, um, 14 guests from Northern Ireland uh, who'd come for our summer conference, and so as part of the summer conference, we, we took them to Lewisham, showed them um, a bit of street preaching and... And I was taking them back from here um, to Tower Bridge Road. And there was a guy who was just outside here, and I just thought... I, so we would just eaten a meal together, and I walked past him. I saw him, and then I walked past him, and I just thought, I wonder if, he, if he's hungry. I wonder if he needs food. And I was like, I was really torn because I've got a group of 14 people who, are, who I'm leading towards Lewisham Station, that they will definitely get lost. They'll definitely take the DLR in the wrong direction instead of going up the hill and going on to the actual station. I know, yeah. So I'm thinking, okay, but, I got, but then this guy, um, and it turns out, like, he was actually here for barley loaves, so it was cool. Like, he, was, he, wasn't, he didn't just want, like, a random um, meal that we happened to have. Like, he... Yeah, he was in the right place. He was going to get the help that he needed. He didn't need me to, to stay, so it was fine. But it's one of those things where we're so busy, our lives are so tight, that we don't have time to, to stop, to actually see if anyone's in need. And here we have priests who, it says, murder on the way to Shechem. It could be through neglect. Not active hostility, but through neglect. They're harming others by not caring for them. And then the third way that this verse may apply to us is that, you know, the duty of the priest, even worse than committing murder, and this it sounds, sounds wild when I say it, some, there's something even worse than committing murder, um, even worse than committing murder is if the priests neg- are, are negligent in their spiritual duties. Remember, their, their job is to bring the people to God. And sometimes what priests can do is forget that they're also human beings. So the very the, the, the very genius of, of, the, of God's provision with the priests was that the priests, because they are they are weak and they are sinful, they ought to be able to sympathise with weak and sinful people. But sometimes what priests do, and I'm speaking about myself here, is that we can get above our station. We can forget that we are in need of the same sacrifices that the people are in need of, um, and we instead of you know, inviting people who are struggling with their sin and with their weakness, instead of inviting people in to their relationship with God, we can, we can somehow, like, erect a barrier and say, no, no, you're, you're not good enough to come to God. You're too sinful. And it's unlikely that we'd say it verbally, that we'd actually say, tell people, ah, oh, you're too bad to come to God, but it's with our attitude, isn't it? It's who are we happy to hang around with um, as a church are there certain people that we exclude relationally because we just, I don't know, we don't want to be associated with their frequent struggles with certain sins? Um, when you hear of, of someone who's, um, I don't know, maybe they've got drunk in public or, or maybe they're in an inappropriate relationship, is your heart towards them one of uh, compassion and sympathy, knowing that I know that I could do the same thing? Let me, let me go to my brother, let me go to my sister and um, seek to you know, let, me, let me prayerfully seek to draw them back to God or is it one of shunning saying, you know this person is, is clearly not on my level I'm a level 20 Christian clearly they're still at level, t- level 3 <laughs> committing murder on the way to Shechem committing heinous crimes so it could be any one of those three situations. It could be that they're actually just actively opposed to God's messengers and they want to kill God's messengers. It could be um, that they're neglecting uh, people's material needs. Or it could be that they're neglecting people's spiritual needs by erecting barriers that hinder people from coming to God. That we, you know, It's a crazy thing, isn't it? If G- there are people that Jesus accepts in their frailty and their weakness, but we don't accept. That's a crazy thing. How can we be more um, exclusive, elitist in our relationships than God? It's a madness, but it's so easy for that to be the case. So at the heart of the problem for Israel is their lack of love for God. And the reason they don't love God is because they don't know God. And the fact that they don't know God and they don't love God, it's seen in their behavior. And that's a really key thing. So if I said to you, Who is God and what is he like? Who is God and what is he like? What you say to me is very important. Like your answer that you give to me is very important. Um, Because relationship with God is impossible if we don't actually know who he is. But even more important than what you say to me in terms of your answer is what you're saying to me, and not just to me, it's not really to me, but uh, it's what you're saying in terms of how you live. Because, I mean, as good as it is to be able to talk about God as, you know, God is a trinity, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to articulate that doctrine very clearly and precisely and accurately, I mean, that's that's good. But even more important is having God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit transform the way that you think, the way that you speak, the way that you live. Are you worshiping? Are you living a life that honors God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? That's a more important question. And so the knowledge of God should, need, should lead to love for God, and that should lead to a transformed life. Now, if I left it there, that would be pretty depressing. <laughs> it's not a very encouraging message because all of us fall short. And so, yeah, where do we go in this passage for encouragement? It's interesting how Jesus uses chapter, sorry, chapter six, verse six. Jesus quotes it several times in his ministry, um, and I want, to see, I want you guys to see it for yourselves. So, have a look with me at Matthew nine. Matthew chapter nine, and it's when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector. So, Matthew chapter nine from verse. 9, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he arose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There is great hope. For us because of the Lord Jesus. Jesus didn't come for people who were sorted. He didn't come for people who's you know who are people who are marked by steadfast love, you know, who are reliable, who never sin, who never fall short. No, Jesus came for sinners. The tax collectors they were hated because they were collaborators with the Empire. They were fleecing their own people in order to gain money for themselves and money for the evil Roman Empire. The sinners were the people who were known publicly to have fallen short in, in quite fragrant ways. They were people that others looked down on. You know, in the social hierarchy, there were people who were always at the bottom. These, were guys, these guys were at the bottom. Morally speaking, they were at the bottom. It'd be like, okay, I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as Those guys. Those are the people that were gathering around Jesus. And the religious leaders, they were outraged. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But Jesus says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He's quoting Hosea. And notice that he's applying it, not to our affection towards God, but he's applying it to the way that we relate to one another. And he's saying, you guys have missed it. You guys don't get it. You don't actually get what God is like. You think you know God, but you don't actually know God. Jesus makes the Father known to us. That's why he came. In John 9, uh, sorry, in John 1, it says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Now That sounds very kind of philosophical and, and cryptic when we, when we just kind of look at it like that. But when we realize that God is a relational God, he desires relation with us, it's very difficult to sustain a relationship without communication. Maybe that's a word for some married folk amongst us. Um, it's very difficult to, to, sustain communica- to sustain a relationship without good communication. And so God communicates to us through his word, through his words, through the prophets, but ultimately through his son, through his son who is the word. So God makes himself known so that we can have a relationship with him, and he does it through Jesus, the word. So Jesus makes God known. And Jesus makes God known not just by giving us the message, but also through his life, through, through the way that he lives. So what is God like? What is God, what is God like? Well, from this passage, we can see that God is the friend of sinners. We see that in Hosea, and we see that in the life of Jesus. God is the friend of sinners. God continues to appeal to sinners, to reach out to sinners, to reach out to us, invites us into relationship with himself. Those who are well have no need for a doctor, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So God has drawn near through his son so that we might know him. And he wants us to know him so that we would love him. And how is it that we... If we find that our affection for God isn't what it ought to be, what what can we do about that? And the answer is that we need to pay attention to the Lord Jesus. If we want to grow in our love for God and our affection for God, we need to pay attention to the Lord Jesus. Because what we find in the Lord Jesus is the love of the Father. God the Father makes his love known to us through his Son. Through the life, the death, and the resurrection of his son. Romans 5 says that it was while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we see that there's such a massive difference between uh, our love and God's love. That we love people who are lovable. We love people who don't irritate us. We love people who don't frustrate us. You know, Whereas God loves us, even while we're still sinners, even while we're hostile to him, he still loves us. We love the lovable. We love the people who make us feel good or who make us look good. Whereas God loves us even though we don't do any of those things for him. And it's really, it's really surprising the depth of emotion that's depicted in Hosea that I don't know about you. So you know, if I asked most people what God is like, many people have the impression of God as, a, as an angry God. As a, as a stony-faced God who just kind of sits there looking sinner sinner that's how we feel that's how we that's how we view God that's how we think about God when I was growing up I grew up going to church and for the, at least the, the first 15 16 years of my life I thought God was like that and, and therefore I found it very hard to love God I didn't love God I just didn't want, didn't want to get in trouble with God so I didn't want to go to hell I didn't want to miss the rapture um but I didn't love God and so when you're trying to keep the rules, but your heart's not really in it, it's just fear of punishment that's keeping you, it's, it's keeping you in line. And then you mess up. And you're like, oh, okay, God, forgive me. But God knows that I'm going to sin again. And I know I'm going to sin again. So what, you know, what's the point? And then you try again because you, you get scared. And that whole cycle, that whole thing, it just doesn't, it does, it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And do you know what broke that cycle for me? It's discovering the love of God that he's shown me in his son, the Lord Jesus. When I realized that it wasn't about my performance and my, you know, me working hard to, to be accepted by God, to be loved by God, when I realized that that was, that actually God in his love for me had done everything required to make relationship possible, that changed everything for me. I mean, it, it took me a long time to, to really get to grips with that, but it, it changed everything. Because I can love a God who loves me, I can love a God who, despite my, yeah, my brokenness, despite who sees the very worst of me and loves me already. So I now don't need to, you know, be on my best behaviour and try and hide myself from God in order for Him to accept me. You know, He's already seen all of that. He's already died for me, in order to accept me. I can love a God like that, and suddenly I had new power. God, God freed me. He enabled me to begin living for Him out of a desire to do what's right, not um, yeah, not because I was trying to avoid punishment. And love does that, doesn't it? Love transforms us. We, you know, we all do crazy things um, for people that we love. I probably, I can't remember if I shared it here um, or elsewhere, but one of my friends, he, um, he became vegetarian because his wife was vegetarian. That's a depth of love, isn't it? Has anyone seen a love like that? Giving up chicken, giving up beef because you love your wife. Anyway, God's love is is so much deeper than that, and we praise him for it. So we find ourselves, do I know God? Who who is God? What is he like? I think the best answer we can give if we want to know God and grow in our love for him is, is God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus. When we look at Jesus, we're looking at God. And what is God like? God is a friend of sinners. God is a relational God who desires relationship with us. And when we find ourselves lacking in our love, when we realize that our love is, it evaporates like the morning dew, we need to look at Jesus. We need to look at his life, his death, his resurrection. And as we look at the Lord Jesus, he enables us to love God as well. So let's pray.